Sometimes I like to imagine the world after us, the strange mammals that will emerge, the abundance of biodiverse plant life taking over our fields and factories and so on. I don't think this world will be better. I maintain that we are the most interesting thing to happen on Earth, and there is real beauty and meaning in our curiosity and compassion, even as we also cause and witness so much suffering. But at any rate, there will be a world after us, after each of us. And that's why there's life insurance. It exists to provide a financial safety net to those who love and count on you. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Policy Genius. Because there will be a world without us. Dear Hank and John. Or as I prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank. It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, did you know that you cannot smile and breathe through your nose at the same time? I'm doing it right now. That joke might not have made you laugh, but it did make you smile, John. (sighs) It's funny. (laughs) funny it did make me smile you're right it sounds it was a successful joke hank if it seems like hank's not in the best mood by the way it's because just before we started the podcast (laughs) hank had a dongle issue and i know that we've already covered dongles (laughs) on the podcast and we don't like to repeat ourselves but yeah hank had a dongle issue where he went on a no i was fine hank got so angry about having spent twenty dollars on a dongle that didn't work that i honestly thought he might like rage quit the podcast (laughs) And I don't mean this episode of the podcast. I was thinking maybe Hank's never going to record this podcast again. I'm done with podcasts. I'm done. I, uh, yeah. So I'm working on, I'm operating via my Bluetooth headset that I've recently charged. So hopefully it will stick around with us for the whole podcast. Otherwise, maybe I am done, John. Maybe I'm done. Great. All right. Maybe the technology required to make a podcast is just too much. Yeah. I'm fine. It's real hard to find Bluetooth headphones in 2020. I'm fine. I, I lost my headphones in the airport. And so I, I I went to the airport store and all of the everything was more expensive than this dongle. This dongle was $21 at the airport store. <laughs> and it is, I don't know, maybe the single simplest piece of equipment it can't have cost more than the packaging it came inside in. Imagine having listened to this for 20 minutes before the podcast started <laughs> and still still being listening to it. That's the situation in which I find myself. This first question comes from Hope, who asks, Dear John and Hank, what happens to balloons when they fly away into the sky? When I was a kid, I just thought they went up into space and floated around or whatever. Mm-hmm. But now I'm starting to think maybe they come down at some point. <laughs> Thanks, Hope. 
Well, I know the answer to this question, unfortunately, so I, I can't riff too much. Yeah, I mean, I like the idea that they just go up into space and they become satellites. That's an awesome idea. And it would or, also... Yeah. Or if it's not just space, it just, they go forever. Yeah. And then like, what's out there? I don't know what's out there. Who knows what's out there? They just go until I can't see them anymore. Yeah, they're like the Voyager spacecraft. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. They just go forever. That's not what happens. No, that's not what happens. What happens is that they, they fly for a while and then they come down. So if you change the pressure outside of the balloon, the pressure inside stays the same and the pressure the, the balloon will expand so usually they get to a point where they're in a low enough pressure area that they will pop and then fall down is just like a piece a, a little hunk of plastic usually sometimes they will survive now that may be true but let me tell you about an experiment in 1984 at audubon park elementary <laughs> school that you definitely could not do today <laughs> okay we all took helium balloons. Mm -hmm. We attached notes to them okay. that said like, hey, if you find this balloon, call my home phone number. Sure. And mine flew all the way to a popka. That's... And it landed and some lady in a popka called me and she was like, I live 95 miles away from you or maybe 45. And I found your balloon and I was like, this is amazing. Yeah. Science. I didn't learn anything, but it felt like science. Well, that's great because most of those balloons landed directly inside of turtles who then died. <laughs> so yours had the best possible outcome. They just flew straight into the turtle mouth and uh, just right around their face. So, yeah, look, I'm, I, I am happy to say that we should not be releasing <laughs> <laughs> tons of balloons into the air and just hoping for the best because that's just obviously going to be bad for turtles and also lots of other things. Let's move on. This next question comes from Grace because we have hope and grace and I assume that we will have charity coming next. Yeah. Dear Hank and John, says Grace, one of the requirements for my graduate school application is to record myself talking about myself for 60 seconds. I give presentations all the time at work, so I thought this would be easy. Nope. First of all, 60 seconds is so short. Second, I just keep blubbering and staring at myself while recording is really distracting. What is your process for recording videos of yourself? How do I get over it feeling awkward? Grace. Well, Grace, first step is to do it for 15 straight years. Yeah. I mean, if you go back and you look at our early videos, Grace, mm. we're pretty uncomfortable staring into the camera lens. Yeah. That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is this is ludicrous. This is a terrible <laughs> suggestion. Yeah. For a graduate school application. It is bad. I don't know. Unless it's a graduate school for vlogging. Yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, unless, like, it is actually testing your ability to look into a camera lens and pretend that it is a person. Mm -hmm. I cannot see how it could possibly be helpful. Oh, my God. I, there's just so many great examples of people thinking that they're going to be able to know something about a stranger quickly. Yeah. And always being wrong. You just can't. Yeah. Such as you asking strangers what their favorite bridge is would be one example. What's your favorite bridge? It tells you way more than any of this other stuff. It shouldn't say 60 seconds on camera. It should just say, what's your favorite bridge? That should be the only question on the application. <laughs> I do have actual tips for you, though. I'm, I'm interested to hear your tips because I don't have this exact problem. But once every year or two, I do have to record a new voicemail message. Oh, and my I God. Yes. I might do 400 takes, and then in the end, I just give up, and it ends up being something like, hello, I'm afraid, and I, I can't remember if I'm supposed to say my name or, or, or just my phone number, but right. But if you recognize this, if you if you recognize my voice, please, please just leave a... 
Yeah. I'm not even going to listen to this. Who are we kidding? Beep. Yeah. Who who is ever going to listen to the voicemail message anyway? First, you have to script it. I'm sorry. You just do. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you have to say all the exact same words, but you have to write down the thing that you would like to say because otherwise there's no way to fit it into 60 seconds. Right. And that is a ludicrously short amount of time to do anything, but that is what they have told you to do. So do it. That's one of the main things about applications is doing things as you are instructed is one of the things they're testing you for. The second, you don't have to be looking at yourself. So you can turn that away, frame yourself up, flip the screen the other way and just record it and don't stare into your own eyes while you talk, which can be terrible. And then finally, do a thousand takes and then come back the next day and do five. That's good advice. Yeah. Actually. Which is also my voicemail advice to you, John. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, Grace, I think the main thing is going to be fulfilling the The, objectives. So making your video exactly 60 seconds long is smart. And I mean, look, when reading this question, I kept thinking, what would I say Mm -hmm. in 175 words about myself that didn't feel like I was trying too hard Mm -hmm. or didn't feel like I was trying to be impressive? Or didn't feel like I was nervous. Like, that's what I hate about this assignment. And I realize, Grace, that me disliking the assignment doesn't make (laughs) things better for you. But what I dislike about the assignment is that it puts so much pressure. Just tell me about yourself. I I hate that question so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just got to be like, look, if I was a mosquito, I would want to bite people on their knee pit. And but I I'm think not that a that, mosquito. <laughs> I'm a human. And so I fly toward different lights. But let's face it. I'm just doing whatever I think in this moment is best for me. And then turn off the camera. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Hank. Our next question comes from Charity, who asks, Dear John and Hank, in your last Vlogbrothers video, you mentioned that you were planning to write a thank you note every month this year. No, 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 Charity. First off, your name is Teresa. <laughs> Secondly... <laughs> Okay. (laughs) Secondly, I'm writing a thank you note every day this year. Mm, mm -hmm. As we are recording this, I have written 23 thank you notes. Wow. And it's January 20th. So I'm actually ahead of schedule. Are they more than just like thank you, like thank you tweets? Because I do those fairly frequently. Uh, No, I'm not writing thank you tweets. Mm. I am writing handwritten thank you notes that fill an entire card. Wow. This is part of a larger practice that is that is completely transforming my life. Anyway, that's not (laughs) Teresa's question. I love that idea, but I was wondering who you're going to be thanking for what. Since we don't tend to get actual gifts every month, are you going to be like thanking in a less literal direction or are you just like working through old physical gifts? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Teresa, uh, Teresa, is this the only reason you thank people? Well, yeah. So a lot of the thank you notes that I'm writing are to people who uh, have donated to support the Maternal Center of Excellence in Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. So that's a huge percentage of thank you notes that I'm writing. But I am also writing thank you notes to, for instance, my in-laws for hosting us over Christmas. Mm -hmm. I've written a thank you note to my longtime mentor for her support over the years, culminating in the making of the Looking for Alaska Hulu show. When I was doing this in November, like for instance, I wrote a thank you note to an artist whose work I really like and have liked for a long time. But Mm -hmm. when you like something quietly, that person doesn't know. (laughs) You know, like... (laughs) 
it's 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 really good and i i think that i i'm not doing that but i would like to the thing is once you start writing thank you notes you realize that you have more i have way more than 365 to write like right. i'm never going to run out of people to thank mm-hmm. and i should add as 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 a postscript to this question that until about 6 months ago i found the practice of writing thank you notes abhorrent on every level <laughs> And I hated it. <laughs> well, that's the and thing. And when I had to write thank you notes for my wedding, I oh, God. resented yes. every second of that process. But I have lately come to a different way of thinking, which may also be temporary. Right, of course, as as are, is the case with most epiphanies. Yeah, I wouldn't call this. This is not an epiphany so much as a, uh, a, a growing awareness, I guess. Right. But like I noticed that like... A lot of people, when they get older, start writing more thank you notes. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that I'm like a, some like a explorer of gratitude. <laughs> I'm more yeah. like landing on the same shore that everyone my age lands on. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the other thing to be completely transparent about this is that I don't know if you know this, Hank, but right now Liverpool are very, very, very good. What the heck is going on? Why, why are we talking about sports suddenly? Get me. Tell me why. As a result of being very, very good, uh-huh. we are participating in a, in a lot of competitions, the Champions League, the uh-huh. Premier League, okay. the FA Cup, etc. And that means that there's a lot of Liverpool games to watch. Now, I like to exercise <laughs> while I watch Liverpool games, but there are so many Liverpool games right now that I actually can't healthfully exercise during every single one of them. So I need something to do during the extra like two to four hours a week that Liverpool Wait, you're saying you can't healthfully exercise during every Liverpool game. What are the Liverpool players doing? Well, Hank, believe it or not, they're in significantly better shape than me. <laughs> Mohamed Salah recently ripped off his uh, shirt uh, after scoring a goal mm-hmm. in the 93rd minute against Manchester United. And oh my God. I mean, you get a yellow card for taking your shirt off, but like if I well, were shaped like him, yeah. I would I would get a yellow card in every game. <laughs> John would John would be clothed in yellow cards because people would just be pinning I, I them would, to him. I would. <laughs> I would get a yellow card right at kickoff because I wouldn't be wearing my shirt yeah. at the start of the game. Yeah, no, you Sarah would give you yellow cards just in the kitchen. <laughs> John, uh, right. I think that this question is somewhat related, and it's gonna be it's gonna be a while before we get to how it's related. But it comes from Emily, who asks, "Dear Hank and John, I heard on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me that bees can feel happy and sad. When I tried to Google more information, the first result was uh, a national helpline." <laughs> <laughs> Four bees? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> that's so beautiful. Yeah. I, I mean, that's great. Actually, it's good that Google, right. it's encouraging to me that Google is is, is, sure. is trying to identify all of the potential problems. <laughs> Are bees happy but, or sad? Oh. So even scrolling down, I couldn't find the study they were talking about, so I stopped searching. But now I really want to know, can bees feel happy and sad? Just a poet concerned for if bees need poems too. Emily. Emily, I want to congratulate you on several different things. But the first one, you know, caring for bees, obviously. Second, hearing something on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me and thinking, that is an interesting fact, but I don't want to say it out loud until I confirm it on the internet. Because Peter Sagal, God love him, doesn't always get things 100% right. Now, I will direct you to to a New Scientist article called Don't Worry, Be Happy, two, two E's in that B, Bees Found to Have Emotions and Moods. And I think that this is probably the study you're looking to find. Now, here's, here's what happiness means for bees. 
We can't ask a bee if it's happy, but people behave differently when they are happy. They are more likely to assume that something positive is happening when something new is happening. They also have a faster recovery from an unpleasant experience. So we can't test bees to see if they're happy, but we can test to see how quickly they recover, and, they, and we can test sort of how optimistic they are. So if we give bees sugar water, they become more optimistic about going into an, an unknown space. So they take that risk more frequently. And also, if we grab a bee and confine it, which simulates kind of a predator thing, like it's been, been grabbed and it's sort of struggling to get away, the bee recovers from that more quickly and becomes more adventurous if it has recently had, uh, recently experienced uh, a feeding session, if it's come across something that's tasty. So so the, the scientists are like, it looks like the bees are behaving differently because they have had a positive experience. And that looks to us like happiness-ish. And I would like to apply this to John Green's ability to engage in these gratitude sessions and the success of Liverpool Football Club. Like, I don't want to say that one is dependent upon the other, but it seems like there's something there. Uh, Well, who knows if my feeling grateful to be alive (laughs) is causing Liverpool to be (laughs) successful or if Liverpool being successful is causing me to be grateful to be alive. Mm -hmm. But I cannot pretend, Hank. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. (laughs) On my favorite soccer podcast, Men and Blazers, they often point out that having your team succeed does not make you a better person and having your team not do well does not make you a worse person. And that is true, except that when Liverpool are successful, I am vastly more gracious patient, understanding, empathetic. <laughs> oh my God. Am, uh, it's terrible. I, it's, it's awful. It feels like this should be traceable. Like it feels like we should be able to tell if the entire city of Liverpool is marginally happier. Well, they got a lot of Everton fans in Liverpool who are having a really, really bad time of it. <laughs> Like, so that's a problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you'd have to. I think you'd have to say like, are Liverpool fans happier when Liverpool have not lost a game in the league for over a year? And the answer is, yeah. <laughs> of, I mean, yeah, I don't. Yes. I don't know that we need to de- design <sighs> some like intense B experiment where we no. confine Liverpool fans into a small space. I think we can just like call them on Monday morning after a Liverpool win and be like, "How you feeling?" And Liverpool fans, on average, will be like. Pretty good. (laughs) Wimbledon also won this weekend. I had a really good weekend. All right. Hannah wrote in to ask, Dear John and Hank, I was listening to John's fantastic solo podcast, The Anthropocene Reviewed, and something occurred to me. When does the era we call the Anthropocene end? Mm -hmm. Are these times marked by some catastrophic event like the Cretaceous period ending in that uh, big meteor thing? (laughs) I'm summarizing the question. <laughs> Will anyone even be around to name the next mm. geologic era? Not from Montana, Hannah. Yeah, <sighs> Hannah. I mean, one of the uncomfortable things about the Anthropocene is that it is the last geologic era. This the no. I mean, after that, the Earth will continue to change in ways that are geologically significant, but there will be no one around to name them. Oh. And the tree falling in the woods that has nobody to hear it makes no sound. But there would still be eras in the sense that like they are humanly named, but they are not human creations. 
So there are geologic, there were geologic eras before humans came around, and there will be again. They, they are marked by differences in geology. Our disagreement, Hank, is over whether or not humans observing something yes. makes it. But not over whether humans will be around to see the next geologic era. Right. I'm not going to say that 100%. It does seem a little, it's just a long time. But the, the thing about the Anthropocene is that it is not the age in which humans live. That's not what makes it the no. Anthropocene. The Anthropocene is the difference in geology created by humans, just like there are eras that were differences in geology created by other very large changes that happened on Earth and, and usually pretty disruptive changes. So just to be clear, your best case scenario is humans go back to being a relatively insignificant species. Well, regardless, <laughs> like it will, will, even if they become insignificant, it will still be the Anthropocene because those changes will have still occurred. Like the world will right. still it'll be Right. It'll be different. the Anthropocene for a long yeah. time until it's something else. And I would argue by the time it's something else, if we're not here to observe it and name it, it doesn't really matter what it is. Wait, I think that it matters, which is just like my, like, I believe that like the geological eras of, of Mars matter, you know? And, and I think that even if this was an uninhabited solar system, like those, that, that would still be interesting information for some sentient life form to know about and, and that it would be a piece of data. Right, but there will be no sentient life form to know about it is the point. But there might be the thing like so. So here are two ways that there could be sentient life forms to know about it. One would be if another one evolved and there were octopodes walking around on the surface of Earth and like opening jars and doing chemistry. And I don't know why opening jars was an important one, but doing chemistry and <laughs> and and uh, setting up an Internet. Of some it's kind. the one Turing test. No artificial <laughs> intelligence can pass. I mean, octopuses can already open jars. Um, I was going to say, <laughs> I mean, like, by, by that definition, octopuses ha have succeeded. Yeah. They're here. They're, they did it. It's happened. Get ready, everybody, for the, the true war. They get to name the next geologic era. It's going to be the, called the Octopocene. <laughs> uh, I can't wait for the Octopocene. So that's one. You're absolutely right, by the way. And I am wrong. Yeah. Like life will continue and, and there yes. may be another like human-like species on this planet. In fact, there's lots of great fiction about this, like the future sentient life forms on Earth, like looking back and being like, there was this other like group of people and like what was their technology like and they were sort of like monkeys and like this is really strange uh, so i love that stuff additionally there could be a long period of time of humans sort of going back to a more natural ecosystem role unlike instead of like a more uh sort of sociological cultural role that we have on the on the planet now and then coming back uh, and doing it again. So that's something that could happen. Uh, and, and Or even it could be like, that could be a, a decision that was made where we'd sort of decide to stay in that role and it becomes a like culturally taboo to move outside of it. Uh, and then, of course, the third one being some one from somewhere else comes by to see what, what things are like. And I just like, I, that might not be, you know, actual people beaming down to the planet's surface and being like, let's do some research. But I think that what we are learning is that as time goes on, we are better and better at observing the rest of the universe. And so maybe people in the future and other, other 
you know, solar systems would be good at observing Earth from a long way away and being interested in how things went here. Yeah. Just as like, I think that we will be able to hopefully in my life observe other places and be like, it'd be interesting to see what went down in that solar system. You're right. And all of those are good examples of how there will be geologic errors after the Anthropocene, not only in the sense that that they will happen, but also in the sense that they might have observers. I think that having observers is is essential to, mm-hmm. to to meaning yeah to experience to meaning to constructing meaning mm-hmm. but i think you're i think you're right on all three fronts and one of the <laughs> things i try to remind myself of is that humans have only been like really really interesting for about like 12,000 years right well, yeah, so, a little longer than that, but yeah. So so we got to get through this, what I like to think of as, as a bit of a bottleneck that we've got coming up <laughs> and see how we do on the other side of it. <laughs> if we make it there. Aruna asks, Dear John and Hank, my boyfriend leaves all his kitchen and bedroom closets open all the time. Does he not know that this is how ghosts travel from house to house? How do I get him to stop this behavior? <laughs> Poltergeist and penguins, Aruna. <laughs> Wait, so Hank, I, I did not know about this. Did you know about this? Even, no, this is totally new, but I love it. It makes perfect sense. But that maybe you want him to want him to get out of your house, though. Maybe he thinks that they're in there already and you need to leave doors open so they leave. You can't trap them inside. So I think that this is a uh, cultural thing. OK, is it? Alternately, this is really how ghosts <laughs> travel. What do I know? So I, I so I mentioned this to four people I know, mm-hmm. one of whom was like, who would ever leave their closet door open? That's how ghosts travel from place to place. <laughs> and three of whom were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. John, I have just asked on Twitter, do ghosts travel into your house through open closet doors? Oh, yeah, that's a good place to ask. <laughs> so I assume that the reason the boyfriend is leaving all of his closet doors open is to prevent a Monsters, Inc. situation where the monster is hiding in the closet and then scares you. When you if open the, it. If the closet door is just always open, then there's no there's no real scare scare opportunity, as I call it. So here's a question. Can we, million dollar idea, make a ghost cam that you can point at your closets to let you know situation re-ghosts? Yeah, what you do, Hank, is you use the existing technology from Pokemon Go, and then you just have, you know, you have the occasional ghost show up and people really freak out. Yeah, they're like, oh, I'm really glad I got this technology it is actually, it is, Until it is I had working. This ghost cam, I didn't know that there's <laughs> ghosts on every street corner and extra ghosts at the post office because yeah. it's a ghost gym. I love it, John. We're going to be, we're going to be You're welcome. thousandaires. It's finally going to happen. This is definitely the kind of product that could cost a lot of money to create and make not very much. Um, yeah, I was on, say a very, very <laughs> low user uptake. John, while I report on Twitter, I need you to come up with a good brand name for our our ghost cam. Mary Ellen says, of course not. They travel through mirrors. That makes sense to me. Shell thinks that they come out of water faucets, Mm. which is upsetting, but also makes sense. I think because like at least pipes are connected from house to house. Also, that's how the Chamber of Secrets, etc. Yes, exactly. Bathroom pipes for sure. People are, are wondering, yes, but only if they died in there. Lots of people don't have 
closet doors so they're now worried. I've made them worried. This is the first step in our marketing plan, John. I've made them concerned. We have to create a terrified consumer base and then a, a product that solves the problem that we ourselves created. Mm-hmm. This is a very old strategy in the world of technology companies. <laughs> Do you have a good brand name for us, John? I don't. No, no that's not that's not my skill set. Which reminds me, today's podcast is brought to you by the ghosts in the sewer. The ghosts in the sewer. <laughs> okay. uh, you're flushing down. They're coming up. <laughs> that's their tagline. Uh, that's their motto. <laughs> oh, this podcast is also brought to you by the Octopusine. The Octopusine. <laughs> Something's got to happen after we're done with this place. <laughs> Oh, today's podcast is also brought to you by Mohamed Salah's yellow card. Mohamed Salah's yellow card. Worth it. And also this podcast is brought to you by Happy Bees. Happy Bees, they've had sugar. They're optimistic and they can recover from difficulty. (sighs) This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by ZocDoc. Look, there are, I think it's fair to say, some imperfections in the American healthcare system. But there are ways that it actually has recently gotten easier. I don't compromise on a lot of things, but I do not love feeling like I can't find the right doctor for me. And I've gotten very lucky that I have found some good doctors for me. When it comes to your health, there shouldn't be compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor who uses your appointment to catch up on the latest headlines slash their family group chat slash their crossword puzzles just because they're available right now or they happen to take your insurance. Instead, like you don't have to keep going back to a doctor who you don't like. You can check out ZocDoc, a place where you can find and book doctors who make you feel comfortable, who listen to you, who prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, and insurance type. So literally no compromises. Because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you think. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. No more phone calls and waiting on hold with a receptionist. We don't have time for this anymore. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients. Booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. The typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even sometimes score same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com slash DearHank and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then you can book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash DearHank. ZocDoc.com slash DearHank. Every time I know it's coming and I'm like, I'm going to have to say ZocDoc.com right now, aren't I? And then I do. I'm getting good at it, everybody. ZocDoc.com. Does seem like a good goal. (laughs) All right, Hank, we got another question. This one comes from Aisha who writes, Dear John and Hank, I recently started reading an absolutely remarkable thing on a Kindle. And I'm very sorry it's taken me so long to do so. (laughs) Sincerest apologies. I think Hank will forgive you, Uh, by the way. I'm, I'm sure he's happy to have you read an absolutely remarkable thing whenever you would like to. Anyway, Aisha goes on, everything I've read so far has been nothing short of perfect. Wow. Oh, that's my goodness. High praise, Hank. (laughs) I agree. It's a great book. I don't think it's nothing short of perfect, but it's it's very good. I loved it. I can't wait for the sequel, A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor, out July 7th and available for pre-order now. That's great (laughs) product endorsement right there. Shameless question enabled content plug aside, I've noticed something weird about Kindle eBooks. It lets you know how many people have highlighted a particular section Mm -hmm. of the book, and it turns Mm -hmm. out a lot of people have the same parts highlighted. Is this because at our very core, we're all just sort of the same, you know, like... B 
trees that just do whatever the sugar water tells them to do? Or do you think it has more to do with a bias that might be introduced by knowing other people's preferences? Mm. Should I disable this? I came. Aisha, I conquered. Now I'm worried I've been saying her name wrong the whole time. <laughs> Aisha? I came. Aisha, I conquered. I came. Aisha, I conquered. Okay. I, we've, I've given it six tries, and I bet they're all wrong. Yeah. Great name-specific sign-off regardless. John, uh, first of all, I love this feature. I, I don't. It terrifies me. I love it. I, I bought my own book on Kindle on my phone because I don't actually have a Kindle just so I could see the passages people highlight. Oh, wow. Now, one thing I'll say, it doesn't show you every passage that every person highlights. I think it, like, picks the top 10 and shows you those or something. Okay. Because otherwise, I think it might get a little messy. I think as a reader, I might turn it off on, unless I'm like very curious because I think that it might take me out of a story. I don't know how what it does for you, but as a as a writer, I find I find it fascinating and very cool. I think it is definitely helpful to know what people are responding to. Yeah. But I will say I I still love reading used books and finding other people's mm-hmm, highlights mm-hmm. in them. Yeah. Noticing I like I remember reading a copy of E.E. E. Cummings the Enormous Room, which is about being a prisoner of war in World War One, and seeing the passages that this person who'd also checked it out of the Kenyon College Library had highlighted <laughs> yeah. and just being completely fascinated because they were totally different from the ones I would have highlighted. Mm-hmm. Like at times I could not figure out what this person found so interesting about the worst parts of the enormous room. Yeah. But it reminded me like it reminded me of how variable consciousness is. And one of the like great, great pleasures of rereading a book that I have read and highlighted or or earmarked pages on or whatever is seeing the places that past me found interesting mm-hmm. versus the places that current me finds interesting. That's that's great. It's like communally reading a book with yourself. That's amazing. Yeah. Jeez. There are so many pleasures of middle age. Yeah. Like one of the many ways that I think middle age is underrated is that it's not until you've been an adult for a long time that you can have some kind of conversation with your past adult selves. Right. And be like, oh, this person was wrong about that. Or like, oh, like in some ways this person has something to teach me. Right. That I had forgotten about. Yeah, totally. And also like what a great piece of advocacy for not treating books as if they are like some hallowed and like treat your books how you want to. But like, I think that they should be used. I think that they, I think it makes perfect sense to like take that paper and do what you want with it. And, you know, yeah. being able to look back at that takes me back to that person who I'm not anymore. And, yep. and lets me like remember what was great about being that person and, and maybe rediscover some of the things that like I didn't leave behind because I wanted to, but just because I did. Yeah, I agree. I think ebooks are great. And I know that this is an old man yells at cloud thing, <laughs> but oh, how I love having the same copy of Sula that I had in college. Yeah, I, I I love a physical book, but I also understand that they come with with costs and consequences and stuff. And I'm happy for anybody who's reading an absolutely remarkable thing, whatever the context. That's a beautiful. <laughs> yeah, it's such a great book. I'm so excited for people to read it. I myself am so excited for the sequel coming out on July 7th that I still haven't read because Hank hasn't sent it to me. I haven't. I'm so close. It's just very messy right now because of it, it's on a track changes, Doc. But um, while while you're while you're talking, I'm buying The Fault in Our Stars on Kindle. Just because so you want to see, see those highlights. highlights. 
Nice. No, actually, I'll buy turtles all the way down. I know what, I know what people like in the Faulkner stars. <laughs> it's, all, it's, all, it's all stuff from the movie. <laughs> That's been there. Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and It's time for a million-dollar idea. Another million-dollar idea. Some guy named John had an idea on Twitter, and he tweeted, it's a million-dollar idea. It's from John. He says, million-dollar idea. A do-not-disturb sign that doesn't fall off the hotel doorknob every freaking time you open the door. I love this one. I don't... It is a million-dollar idea because there are that many hotel rooms that's and true i am sure that the hotel rooms of the world are also anxious to solve this problem but it must be that all of the solutions are not as good i want to cre- i want i actually want to create this product oh i don't the last thing i want to do is be in the business of like <laughs> selling an item to hotel chains yeah. that sounds like a horrible business do you know how many hotel rooms there are in the united states I don't. How many hotel rooms? Do you know the answer to that question? Over five million. Wow. So it is a million dollar idea. I think the question is, could you sell them for 20 cents a piece? And I think the answer is no. Right. Well, the, the, here's here's the thing. You have to create the product and then you have to get them hooked. So you have to have some other value that's being added by the door tag. And, and I don't know what that is. A, a great user experience, John. That's what I'll say in, in the meetings. <laughs> yeah, right. Gonna, if you're gonna, gonna, if this is going to be a million dollar idea, it's got to also be a technology company. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's got it's got to be an app yeah. that sends uh-huh. a do not disturb message. <laughs> it's a subscription yeah. service. Oh, only four dollars a month, and the, they won't open the door while you're getting ready for your shower. All right, I guess it's time for the news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon. I'll start because I've got good news. Yay. AFC Wimbledon won a football game. <laughs> You've done that before. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not the first time we've won a football game this season, but it is the seventh. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's sports. So it's worth celebrating whenever it happens. And best of all, Continuing our very strange form where we play well against good teams and terribly against bad teams, we beat Peterborough, who are up in 10th place and were on, well, I guess they've been on bad form. They've lost four out of their last five games. But the important thing is that we beat them. We did not beat them. I watched the entire game, and I would argue that we did not necessarily beat them by playing better. They had 18 shots to our eight, but (laughs) we beat them, and that's all that matters. Joe Piggott scored a, I guess I would call it scrappy goal, but effective. The fans, the Wimbledon fans like to sing, feed the pig and he will score. And uh, indeed, they fed the pig and he scored. So Wimbledon win 1-0. The only bad news in all of this, and it is very worrisome news, The only bad news in all of this is that our, by far, our best player this season has been Marcus Fors, Mm -hmm. who injured his hamstring, and as a result, his loan is not being renewed to the end of the season. Okay. So it's not super clear where our goals are going to come from in the the back half of the season. I guess we're going to have to count on the pig. I, it's all going to be Joe Piggott, the Maidstone Messi, you know, <laughs> came up from the fifth tier of English football straight to AFC Wimbledon. And he's he's done really well. And AFC Wimbledon have always like in the past, we've always succeeded most when we had as strikers one big guy like Adebayo Fenwa and one fast guy. And Joe Piggott was always kind of the fast guy. Mm-hmm. But I've been I was looking at him during the game this time and I was like. He's becoming a bit of a big guy. 
<laughs> he's starting to fill out a little bit. So so we'll hope that uh, yeah. that maybe Joe Pickett can be both our big and our fast guy, because I don't think we're bringing in anybody else during the January transfer window. You want to be the fast guy, John? Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm really in between. Sort of the slow, medium-sized fella. <laughs> That more useful in sponsoring the team, maybe, than actually playing on it. Yeah, I think that's my that's my that's my gift. Uh, so, John, do you know what mycelia are? I do know what mycelia are. Oh, nice! Aren't they the little? Uh, aren't they the little things? They're like fungus the, roots, basically. Oh no, I don't. I I, <laughs> I, I, I didn't know at all. <laughs> They're fungus roots. Now I know. Yeah. So basically, fungus roots. So the, the majority of a fungus is not the mushroom that comes out the top. It's these little strands that move in and about little threads of a fungus that build out uh, their structure and gather the nutrients of the fungus. And NASA has is doing a project to use mycelia as a lightweight, compact material that can grow into a structure just if you add some water to it once, once you get to your destination. So you take these mycelia with you, and then when you get there, you add water, and that spurs them to, to sort of like take form and become this like self-healing material that astronauts can then live inside of maybe what yeah it's wild there i i don't you know you had me until the end yeah you gotta live in it you can make bricks out of it wow basically so that's it the plot twist john they're making houses wow they want to make houses out of mushroom bricks wow it's called myco architecture and there's multiple organisms that come together and make up these things. So that there's a layer of the outside that is frozen water that shields the inhabitants from radiation. And then the middle layer would be made of cyanobacteria, which uses the water and the outside light to do photosynthesis to make oxygen. And that layer also serves as the nutrients for the inner layer of mycelia, which are then uh, activated in some way to create the habitat and then eventually baked, killing the mycelia so that the uh, structure stays solid and doesn't contaminate the planet with new life is the idea. It's all very hypothetical, but they have made some yeah. weird fungus bricks. Uh, so that's that's the news from Mars. NASA's trying to build mushroom houses. That, first off, is great. <laughs> but the way that you summarized it reminded me of the Onion satirizing TED Talks <laughs> where they would have a guy and he's doing a TED Talk and he's like, my idea, cars that run on garbage. How's it going to work? Well, you take a current car and you make it work on garbage. <laughs> now, you might be asking yourself, how are we going to do that? Well, that's up to the scientists. <laughs> So in this case, the scientists are there. They're doing it. I don't under. I just don't understand it very well. Yeah. I'm not one of the scientists. I also i i i love a um, building material that you've got to be real sure to turn off, or else it might accidentally build itself across the entire planet. <laughs> That's my favorite kind of building material, <laughs> the kind where if you forget to flip a switch, right. it might colonize yeah. the entire solar system. Mars has a mushroom piscine. <laughs> <laughs> 
John. I think that's it. I think that's the end yep. of the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for potting with me. This podcast is edited by Joseph Tudemedish. It's produced by Rosiana Hulse Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. At least for another week, Victoria is leaving us. Victoria, thank you so much for all that you have done, not just for Dear Hank and John, but for everything complexly. The music that you're listening to right now and at the beginning of the podcast is by the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't, don't forget, forget to be awesome. awesome.